Lord Jesus. We need your help given all the competing interests we have going through our hearts and our minds every day, but especially on a day set aside for worship among your people. We need your help to see you as you really are, to have our hearts and minds expanded to to truly worship you as you ought to be worshiped. This morning, would you grant me clarity of my speech? Would you help me to preach your word with the power and exactness that's befitting of such a task? And would you help us to draw away as people who have truly seen the word that made it all, always was, and revealed himself to us? Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have this word to come to this morning. We pray in your name. Amen. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That's because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are? I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's from the Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. C.S. Lewis, as he so often does, capturing a truth that we Christians struggle mightily to wrap our heads around and putting it in story form in such a palatable way. That as we grow in maturity and our understanding of Jesus, our worship grows alongside it. In the story, Lucy's been out of Narnia for a while. She comes back and she finds Aslan's grown and Aslan reveals It's actually not that he's grown, it's that she's bigger, she can see more of him now. Christians know this to be true in our walk with Jesus. No matter how long you've been a Christian, whether it's a couple weeks or as far back as you can remember, there's always more of Jesus for you to wrap your head around and ultimately all of more of him for you to worship. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount all summer and uh, we've heard a lot from King Jesus, words straight out of his mouth, the, the greatest sermon ever preached. And yet, friends, the Sermon on the Mount is not the totality of what's revealed about Jesus. It can only take us so far, which is why it's good this morning that we are turning our attention to the Gospel of John, because it's a book designed to introduce us to Jesus and answer the question, who is this Jesus? I love it when books make it easy to know what they're about. Um, In the case of the Gospel of John, there is something called a purpose statement that tells us what the book's about. John wrote for us. So if you have a Bible, flip open with me. John 20, verses 30 through 31. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Tail end of his Gospel, this is what John says. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This then is a book designed to help us know who Jesus really is. And once we know who he is, to believe in him and find life. Life that starts now and life that goes on into eternity. John's uniquely able to help us do this because it, of all the books in the Bible, most clearly lays out for us the fact that Jesus is not just a teacher, not just some virtuous miracle worker. Jesus, in fact, is God himself come down 
taking on human flesh to bring us eternal life. A.W. Pink wrote of the Gospel of John, he said, in this book we are shown that the one who was heralded by the angels to the Bethlehem shepherds, who walked this earth for 33 years, who was crucified at Calvary, who rose in triumph from the grave, and who 40 days later departed from the Essenes, was none other than the Lord of glory. The other Gospels certainly don't teach anything contradictory, and indeed they hint at this reality, yet John uniquely unveils this Jesus as the eternal God come to rescue a people for himself. So as we study the Gospel of John together, my prayer is that we will see more of Jesus. We'll understand who he is, have our view of him expanded, and have our worship expanded as a result. I've condensed what I hope is going to happen as we uh, study this book together over the next year and a third or so uh, into seven points. You can think of it as seven reasons you should study the Gospel of John. We'll go through them together. First, as we've already talked about it, uniquely shows us the depth of Jesus. Uh, again, you might have known Jesus for a long time, and yet there's always more of him to know, always a, a greater view of him to have, and greater joy as a result. John's gospel will help us to expand our view of Jesus. Second, it speaks to both mature and to new Christians. It's been said of John's gospel that it's shallow enough for a young child to safely play in, and deep enough to drown an elephant. And I think that's true. John's gospel is easy enough to understand on the surface. You guys already understand what it's about. It's about who Jesus is and how when you believe in him, you have eternal life. And yet John, more so than even other biblical authors, he writes in layers. It's the type of book you have to read again and again over decades of walking with Jesus. And there's always more treasure to unearth. And my hope is as we study this together, we'll unearth some of this treasure and see the beauty of this magisterial gospel. Third, it's relentlessly evangelistic. It may be so relentlessly evangelistic that over time you'll think that John's getting a bit repetitive. Again and again, he will put before us the reality that you must believe in Jesus in order to have eternal life, and that if you reject Jesus, you will not have this life. As we see John's emphasis on this need for people to believe in Jesus, it'll be useful as we invite our unsaved neighbors or bring our family members that need to believe in Jesus. John's gospel is designed to introduce people to him and to introduce them to the life they can have in him. But it'll also be good for all of us. Because as John is so relentless in his evangelism, we need to be relentless in ours. My hope and my prayer is that each of us will see ourselves as taking forth this same message, introducing people to Jesus like the uh, Gospel of John. Fourth, we're going to study the Gospel of John because it helps us to find the fullness of life. Jesus told us in John 10.10 10, that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. Sometimes people present the gospel, and we think of the Christian life as kind of fire insurance. It's really concerned about getting through the pearly gates on the final day. And yet Jesus, presented in God's John, John's gospel, holds out for us life right now. Abundant life that starts now and goes on forever as we study John's gospel. My prayer is that we will, in greater measure, know that life ourselves. Fifth, it teaches us how the Old Testament applies to Jesus. You might say it helps us to be whole Bible Christians. 
The, the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot more direct quotations from the Old Testament. Uh, they might, you might say they have more of an intended Jewish audience, and yet John's Gospel uses allusions and typology and, and foreshadowing and all sorts of other tools for understanding how the Old Testament points forward to Christ. We'll see how the temple was really all about Jesus. How Jacob's ladder was all about Jesus. How the manna in the wilderness was all about Jesus. And as we do, we'll learn how we can be whole Bible Christians. How we can see all of the scriptures pointing forward to Jesus. Six, it lets us listen to lengthy dialogues with Jesus. There's a whole cottage industry of books and various literature that put words in Jesus' mouth so we can hear him have back and forths with modern people. People are fascinated with what might it be to have a conversation with Jesus. Well, you might say if you want to know what it's like to talk to Jesus, read John's gospel. He had, we have long, long sections where Jesus has back and forth conversations with all sorts of different people. And we'll find, as believers have for centuries, that as we hear these conversations from Jesus as a fly in the wall, we'll fall in love with the Savior in a new way. And finally, seventh, all of this. As our view of Jesus expands, as our understanding of him expands, it will deepen our worship of God. We'll have a greater understanding of who this Jesus is. We'll have greater joy at what he's done for us. And ultimately, we'll be drawn to worship him as our God and our King. Now, John's gospel is, uh, was written probably in Ephesus by the disciple John. He was the last man standing of the disciples. All the others, as far as we can tell, were martyred before him. Uh, he managed to survive the attempts to martyr him and live out his days in exile on the island of Patmos. He probably wrote this before that happened, probably while he was fleeing from Jerusalem in Ephesus. He wrote four other books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those letters, and then the book of Revelation. This book that he wrote is fairly simple in its structure, at least on the surface, it's got a, an introduction in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1, and then it's got an ending or an epilogue in chapter 21, 20 through 25. And in between are two pretty discrete sections, chapters 1 to 12, just Jesus' life and ministry generally, and then uh, chapters 13 through 21, focusing more on Jesus' life and ministry leading up to the cross and eventually his resurrection. Now, as is the case with so much in John's gospel, though, there is so much more that meets the eye. Within though, that pretty basic structure are substructures, foreshadowing, allusions, all sorts of complexity that if we take the time to notice, we'll, we'll actually just be unbelievably blown away by the, the richness of the way he wrote this. My hope is as we study this together, we'll have time to point out some of those things and uh, find the treasures of God's word to be sweet to our mouths. The section we're going to begin this morning is the introduction to the introduction. <laughs> it's uh, verses 1 through 5, which is the first section of the larger section called the prologue, 1 through 18. And it pretty much sets up the whole book. The themes introduced in the prologue basically are the themes that John will spend the whole rest of the book unpacking. So to understand the prologue is to understand God, John's gospel. The, the simplest way to understand the prologue is it keeps switching between word and witness. So this morning we'll look at verses 1 through 5, and that's focused on word. 
the, the eternal word uh, we'll, we'll unpack together. Then in verses 6 through 8, it goes to the witness of John the, the Baptist. Then in verses 9 through 14, 14, it goes back to the word theme again, the word uh, being believed on and eternal life as a result. And in verse 15, John the Baptist again, witness again, and then 16 through 18, back to the word uh, once more. Now, this morning we're going to focus on those first five verses, and we're going to look back at the very start to the word that always was, the word that made everything. We're going to see it in three sections. In uh, one through two, we'll see that with Jesus is the word that always was. In three through four, we'll see that Jesus was the word that made it all. And then finally, in verse five, we'll see that Jesus was the word that showed himself. And as we do, we'll see that Jesus is actually a whole lot bigger than our imaginations could conjure up. This is the very God of the universe showing himself to us as the one who made us. Let's begin in verses 1 through 2. The word that always was. Now, if I were to start off and say, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, you would know I'm talking about the greatest science fiction uh, movie ever made, Star Wars. Now, uh, those words appear in the introduction, kind of the, the prologue to it, that scrolling green text that takes forever to get to the bottom of the screen, you know. Um, and uh, if, if we were to forget that the, the prequels ever happened, uh, that never should have happened in the first place, you would say that is the start of Star Wars, right? In a, long, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. John only has to use a couple words for us to know exactly what he's talking about. In the beginning. In the beginning. We, we read it earlier in the service. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He takes us back to that moment in creation where God speaks into nothingness and creates everything. We call it creation ex nihilio. God makes out of nothingness everything that exists. And he does it by speaking. John takes us back to that moment, back earlier than all the other gospels, or before the Christmas story, before Mary and Joseph, and before the... 400 years of silence, and before everything with Israel, before the garden, he takes us back to that moment of creation, and right before it, and he says, in that moment, someone was with God. In the beginning was the word. Very carefully crafted sentence. You need to pay attention to the details of the word, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about Greek Hebrew, things like that. I don't normally spend a lot of time doing that because your translations are excellent. But to understand exactly what John's saying, it's worth our attention this morning. I want you to pay attention to that word was. In the beginning was the word. The way it's written in Greek, that word was is in what's called the imperfect tense. It means it's an action, something that happened in the past that has ongoing implications into the future. It keeps happening. It's a bit like saying, as one pastor put it, in the beginning was the word, and the word was always wasing. It's not grammatically correct, but it gets across the idea the Greek has. There's this ongoing being in eternity past alongside God. 
Now, what is this being or person? Well, we have to dial into that word, word. In the beginning was the word. The, the Greek word for that is logos. It's a really widely used word in the New Testament and other Greek writings. It's used hundreds of times in the New Testament. It can mean anything as small as just a, an utterance or a phrase. Uh, it could be used to talk about a message. So like the, the word of God could be the, the message of God like that. It can also be used as it was by philosophers in that day to describe the inner logic or coherence of a, a thought system. or So you could speak of the, the logos of a car by looking at its schematics. Or the, the logos of a judicial system by thinking about its ethics. Or the, the logos to the world itself. That there's something underpinning it all, giving it rationality and coherence. In John's day, logos was used in those sort of circles also. Most importantly to John's usage, though, is actually the Old Testament. There's a, a parallel word used richly in the Hebrew, a word called debar, translated as word very often. We said that God spoke in Genesis 1 and created everything. And debar is often used to describe God's activity. So in Psalm 33, 6, for example, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. God's speaking, his word, is what he uses to, to create. It's how he brings about salvation and saves his people. Think of the valley of the dry bones, how God uses the, the word of God through Ezekiel to bring life to those dead and desiccated bones. It's how God brings judgment, his word. The, it causes the, the mountains to melt and the trees to splinter. God's word is his self-expression. Dr. D.A. Carson says that with this Old Testament rooting, that self-expression is the closest idea that we can get to how John is using this logos to describe who is very clearly Jesus. So then it would be in the beginning... Always wasing was God's self-expression. Now, if you doubt that that's Jesus, verse 14 makes it explicit. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This then is talking about the pre-existence of Jesus as God's eternal self-expression. Now, is your head hurting yet? If not, hold on. It's going to get worse. Don't worry. <laughs> Uh, next, he, he has two more phrases that we need to pay careful attention to. The word was with God and the word was God. Uh, verse 2 just reiterates the first, uh, first of, uh, of those. Uh, he was with, uh, in the beginning with God. So when you look at both of those concepts, they're like two pillars holding up this uh, view of Jesus that you can't remove one without knocking down the other. Uh, the first, that phrase, with God, it, it communicates relationship. So with shows us that this is not just God appearing in different manifestations of himself. This isn't just God in one moment putting on one mask and another moment putting on another. This is, these are two discrete persons somehow that are relating to each other before the world was made or anything else. The word was with God. It implies that there is this ongoing fellowship and relation and knowability between the persons of the Father and this word, or as we will call him, the Son. 
Alongside it is this, the word was God phrase. This one communicates divinity. It doesn't say the word was a God, as if we had multiple gods. The Jehovah's Witnesses are uh, known for uh, famously trying to retranslate this verse to say the word was a God. Uh, they make the argument because they say in the Greek that uh, that phrase is missing what's called the, the article. In English, the article would be the, and so it doesn't say the God, so that must mean it is a God. Uh, now, that's ridiculous on its face. If you just take John on, his, on uh, his own, just go later in chapter 1. Look with me for a second. John 1, 49. The exact same Greek construction is used here talking about this phrase, King of Israel. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Even the Jehovah's Witnesses mangled translation gets that one right as the King of Israel, and there's no article present in that one. So it's very obvious that's not what it says, but try they might because they must deny that Jesus is in fact God himself. I was uh, sitting on a plane in my seminary days, and as I was in the habit, <clears throat> as I'm in the habit of doing, whenever I sit next to someone, you know, we're going to talk about Jesus. I mean, I've got a captive audience. Like, you're not going anywhere, so we're going to talk about him at some point. In this case, he had a book out he was studying, and it looked like a Bible, so I started talking to him. It turned out it was a New World Translation. He was a Jehovah's Witness. And so I asked him, I said, hey, do, do you believe that Jesus is God? And it was like I flipped a switch. I mean, this whole speech about Greek grammar and the, the lack of the article and how it's clearly he was a god, not the god. It just went on and on and on and on. I was like, wow, that's very impressive. Uh, hey, you know, I, I happen to have a Greek Bible here with me. Um, do you know how to read it? I do. Let, let's read it together. And uh, his, his face dropped pretty quickly, and uh, he didn't have a good explanation. Turned out he didn't know any Greek except what he memorized, and that's often the case. If you witness Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, be prepared. If you go to John 1.1, 1, 1, they've memorized a spiel. But the God's word here is very clear and very carefully written that if we pay attention to it, we will be able to come to no other conclusion than this. This word shares in God's divinity. This word is not a second God alongside God. That doesn't work with what came before. That he was with God. This word is not just a manifestation, God putting on different masks. That doesn't work either. This word is not like a created being or an angel. No, this word is mysteriously a different person and yet of the same essence. He is God himself in the truest of forms. This, this, uh, this verse, along with others, make up the bedrock foundation of the doctrine we call the Trinity. That God has existed eternally in three persons of Father, Son, and Spirit. Co-eternal, co-equal in every way, and yet sharing in one essence of divinity. They're never to be confused with each other. They're actually three distinguishable persons that you can pay attention to the scriptures, you're forced to say they are there. The, the Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Son. They have relationship with each other. They have had relationship with each other all the way to eternity past, and yet they share Godhood. There truly is only one God. They work together in concert in everything they do. Now, is that, comp is that complicated? You better believe it. 
Uh, Christian thinkers have been wrestling with it for centuries because this is not something that you would ever write down on a piece of paper on your own. The reason we believe this is because God has revealed it. It's the only way you can make sense of your whole Bible. If you deny any of these pillars, you end up in a a place denying something the Bible says with a, a skewed view of God. Now, one of the implications from this that's helpful for us as Christians is to realize that this eternal community of the Trinity means that God is not actually lacking in himself prior to creating. Sometimes people give a a view of God as if he's kind of an old man sitting up in heaven, just waiting for someone to pay attention to him. Like he created because he was lonely, and he just couldn't stand the thought of not being with you for all eternity. Now, that may sound nice and kind of sappy, and yet it makes God domesticated. It makes God small. It makes God dependent on us, his creatures. Here in John 1, 1 and 2, is a God that doesn't need us for anything. It's a God that eternally was in fellowship with the persons of the Trinity. His self-expression, the word. Which is what makes what comes next all the more amazing. Because what was this word doing? Well, second section we'll look at, verses 3 and 4. The word was creating. The word that made it all. In verse 3, he says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John says it both positively and negatively to rule out any misunderstanding. This word created everything, and there was not a single thing that has been made, or it will ever be made, that was not made through him. In other words, God's agent in creation is this eternal word. Other parts of Scripture say the same thing. Colossians 1 spends almost a full chapter on it. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus not only made everything, that he actually upholds the universe. He sustains it by the word of his power. Verse 4 communicates the same. I think it's best understood as a communication of the same creation theme going forward. Uh, John says there, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, those are two themes, life and light, that we'll see John's going to come back to again and again and again. And it could be that he's talking there, about, uh, using life and light, referring to uh, the, the eternal life that Jesus would bring, or the illuminating that he does to the mind and heart through the gospel. It could be that's what he's talking about. I think it's more likely that he is continuing talking about creation. He, he's saying that Jesus is the source of all light, life. And that even in his creation, he's actually given an ability to know things, a a light, an illuminating ability in making us as in God's image. Have you ever thought about the fact that we can actually know things? Have you ever taken the time to think about that? I mean, if the world were as some would have you to believe, we are nothing more, and the world around us is nothing more than bouncing molecules. It's all random. It's just molecules bouncing off each other and they happened in a cosmic accident to bounce in such a way that life exists and we exist as human beings. And as a result, there's really not much you can expect out of this world except it's just kind of, it's here. 
Now, it, it may seem as if those who are coming from a materialist or naturalist worldview have the upper hand when it comes to science and rationality. And yet, friends, if you take the time to study the philosophy of science and questions of epistemology, how do you know anything? You'll realize that we Christians really have the upper hand. The fact that we can learn anything about systems and the world we live in, the fact that experiments are repeatable, that you can test one thing in one place and test it over in the other and check the results against each other and expect consistency, that doesn't have any, there's no reason it should be that way if there were not some sort of undergirding logos or laws of logic. I don't think it's any uh, accident that John used that word logos that the philosophers in his day used to describe Jesus. Because I think what he's showing us here is that Jesus made everything that is and that if you look carefully enough, you can actually find his fingerprints. I was in a small group in Wheaton and it's a college town so you get a disproportionate number of people that are working on higher education degrees and things. And so uh, we just opened up our small group and said, hey, whoever you want to, join it. And uh, pretty short order, we filled up and we found out we had... Uh, two theology and New Testament PhD candidates. We had two lawyers. Uh, we had uh, trained counselors and uh, an economics professor who held a PhD. And I'm looking around, I'm like, I'm not smart enough to be in this small group. What's going on here? And um, so one day I was really excited when at church I ran into a guy that was looking for a small group. And he was much more of a blue collar type guy. You know, he liked shooting and hunting and that sort of stuff. And so I was like, all right, yeah, you know, we'll have a little bit more diversity in uh, the way we think about things. And so I brought him to our small group. And the first day there, he said, I'm sorry, guys, my wife couldn't make it. She's working tonight. So someone asked, oh, so what does your wife do? He's like, oh, she's a particle physicist. <laughs> you know, you try, but you, <laughs> what can you do, right? And, uh, you know, I'm not really big into physics, but... Um, I did enjoy getting to hear her talk about her work. Uh, she's the type of a particle physicist that goes and works on those big colliders that you have to go over to Europe to find one these days. And so she'll spend weeks and weeks working on a measurement of an instrument, looking at things that are too small for you to possibly see with a microscope. You need this specialized equipment just to sense it. And she's working weeks and weeks on the implications of this tiny little measurement. And collaborating with people all over the world on what this means. And it was just amazing to have that discussion there in our small group. At the end of the day, say, wow, isn't this world amazing that Jesus made? You know, that's what it should make us do. When we see this world we live in, we discover something of the complexity of it. We should say, wow, it was made by the Logos, by the eternal word and he must be beautiful. Parents, maybe you're looking for ways that you can talk with your kids about Jesus. Anytime you notice something, how a spider spins its web, or why stars are bright one night and dimmer the other night, you know, take that opportunity to say, hey, that, that's a great question. Let's go read a book about it at the library, and, and let's find out why Jesus made it that way. There'll be building a heart of worship in your kids, even as you do that. This eternal word 
the word that always was, is the word that made it all, and then finally in verse 5, the word that showed himself. He returns to this light theme. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the first time you read through John's gospel, you're likely to think he's just continuing the creation theme there. The light shines in the darkness. You can think back to Genesis. God speaks, and then there was light where there was formerly darkness. The darkness stood no chance compared to the God who's creating light. That's true. But then once you've read the whole gospel and you come back through a second time, you can't help but think about something a little different, something that has moral overtones to it. You think of Jesus declaring, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will no longer walk in darkness. You think of John saying that those in the darkness hate the light and won't come forward so their deeds might be brought to the light. Or you think of the horror of Judas as he was about to betray Jesus. And it says Satan entered him. And then he walks out and it says, and it was night. See, John writes in layers, and here he writes foreshadowing the reality that he's going to be teasing out in the chapters of head. This is shorthand for the gospel. That Jesus' coming into this earth is, as it were, light coming into a dark place. The eternal word, the Son of God, coming into a sinful, rebellious world on a rescue mission. That he went all the way to that dark day of the cross when it looked like the forces of darkness would overcome the light, taking life from its very author. And yet, the darkness did not overcome the light, friends. Jesus rose from the dead. And with his rising from the dead brought forth light and life so that now he can offer to any that believe in him Eternal life that starts now and goes on forever. John, like a good book that you can reread again and again and again, holds out for us the gospel truth that all of us who call ourselves Christians know so well. Friends, we have an incredible meal before us, this gospel of John. It's going to expose us to aspects of Jesus that no other parts of scripture will and yes at times it's going to make our brains hurt and yet as our view of Jesus expands so will our worship this morning I hope you are expectant of that I I hope you're willing to do the hard work of studying John's gospel so that you might find what Jesus says is true that you might find life life that starts now and life that goes on forever. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song that weaves together many of these truths of this word that came down and did not become overwhelmed by the darkness. It said, you were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord most high, your hidden glory in creation, now revealed in you our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. 
you silence the boast of sin and grave. Brothers and sisters, that is the eternal word that we worship. The word that always was. The word that made everything. And the word who showed himself saved sinners like us. Let's pray.